When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Now I'm nervous. How exactly does he want to be thanked? Anyway, good morning. Coming up today, the two-year-old who always has a smile despite a life-threatening disease. 30 years on, the family of Imelda Keenan believe she was murdered. And they're convinced a group of acquaintances have the answer. And did the outgoing IFA president leave farming in a better place? Tim Cullinan looks at his legacy after 11. When you call 0818 300 103 is my number, you can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. So let's see what's on the front pages this morning and let's start with the Irish Independent, which tells us there will be sweeping changes to speed limits by the end of this year. And, you know, we're only on the third day of the year and already three people have lost their lives on Irish roads in 2024. That's a rather grim start to the year. So it says Junior Minister Jack Chambers is pledging that lower speed limits will be in place by the end of this year and he will be instructing county councils across the country to review urban areas in particular, streets, to reduce speed limits. And that's all well and good. The enforcement picture will have to be looked at as well, no doubt. Moving to the Irish Daily Star, crime spree perv caught in Temple Bar. It says... A violent sicko had more than 50 offences committed in a month-long rampage, but was caught following a carjacking. Details on the front of the Irish Daily Star. Also on the front page today, Irish Times tells us Ringsend politicians were not told of a plan to create a homeless hub in their area. This after a fire broke out and, again, very similar narrative to Galway where the Garda Commissioner said they hadn't been consulted. The state denied this and said they had been. Lead story on the Irish Examiner this morning. If you want to look up X-rated websites, you will need a passport to prove that you are over age. This is the new idea from the media regulator, Commission Naman, which believes that just asking somebody if they're over 18 is not effective. You have to do more than that before they can see the content. And that's a reasonable observation, I suppose. But will people be prepared to give their passport details in order to consume online porn? Remains to be seen could be a very big deterrent. Anyway, the new online safety code is out for public consultation until the end of this month, so feel free to take a look and have your say. You don't need a passport to do that. Uh, What else is on the front pages this morning? The Irish Daily Mail talks about delusional optimism. The coalition is fast-tracking mega-projects and in doing so, causing delays and budget overruns, according to senior civil servants. There is, I suspect, a temptation with Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party to spend everything in the kitty 
just in case Sinn Féin get into government after the next election and there won't be very much left other than crumbs. Anyway, that's what's on the front pages this morning. Let's go inside the papers. A um, little bit of good news if you are fed up of expensive electricity. Yet another cut has been announced today, this time from You Know Energy, which describes itself as Ireland's newest electricity provider. And the reduction is 8%, which comes on top of a previous reduction in November. So in around half an hour, we'll take a look at the energy market as things stand. Who is the cheapest? What sort of offers are available? We'll give you a run through. But that story in the Irish Times today. The family of Ashling Murphy are thanking you for your support after a significantly difficult year in which her murderer was jailed for life. And the statement is carried in full on midlands103.com this morning if you wish to read it. But they have been reflecting on a year that has passed and they're looking forward to a new year to come. And they want to thank all who donated, who undertook a fundraiser, who promoted her memorial fund, who sent messages of support, and they want you to know your support has not gone unnoticed. They say Ashling touched the hearts and minds of many people worldwide during her short life, and even after her tragic departure from us almost two years ago. And as we anticipate 2024, we want to continue to ensure Ashling's name and legacy continues to live on every day. And let's collectively make sure that happens in the most po uh, positive way, as it will, invariably through music. That was her big, big passion. And I'm sure when Tradfest resumes in Tullamore later this year, she will be front and centre in everybody's thoughts. Anyway, more details on midlands103.com. Letter to one of the papers. How would you answer this one? It comes from a Brazilian man who has just turned 50 and arrived in Ireland last year, coming alone after his marriage of 17 years had ended. And he says, I enjoyed my first year alone. I went to the theatre. I read many books. I spent many hours listening to music and watching TV. I did all of this alone. I wasn't able to find a partner, but I didn't search very much, at least not in my first months. I have a good job. I've made many friends in the office, but all of them are married and they have families of their own, so there isn't much we can do together. I did try going to pubs, but I'm very shy to approach people I don't know. And furthermore, I noticed all of the women in these places were with a partner or in groups. So I ended up drinking alone and I found it rather depressing. At one time, I was using four different dating apps. It was emotionally devastating because many of the profiles were false. I enrolled in a language course to try and meet new and interesting people, but my classmates aren't interested in socialising. And I've always had a very difficult time dating because I'm very shy and introverted and my psychiatrist thinks I may be on the autism spectrum. But also my social circles are limited. So now, just turned 50 and being in a different country with a different culture, I'm finding dating very difficult and I don't know where to go to meet interesting people or how to reach out to them. What would be the answer to that? Because I suspect, 
OK, it's more difficult just because he's from Brazil, but there are many people from all nationalities and Irish as well who are over 50 and are in the same boat and just find it difficult to be single and to mingle. Advice on a postcard or else on text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103. Theatre was mentioned by that gentleman as one of his pastimes. When you go to the theatre, there is a certain etiquette. Now, I haven't frequented theatre in a long time, but Claire O'Brien, who's producing today, reliably informs me there are certain do's and don'ts, like getting up to go to the toilet too often, etc. But the actor Andrew Scott has given an interview on a new podcast, and he talks about the occasion when he was performing Hamlet. And he was going into the whole to be or not to be. And he recalls just at that moment an offending member of the audience pulled out his laptop to send emails. And he couldn't effing believe it. So what did he do? He paused. Right there on stage. The stage team were like, get on with it, get on with it. He was like, there's no way. And he said, I stopped for ages and stared at the guy with the laptop, who eventually, when he was prompted by people around him, put it away and focused on the performance once again. Now, I know, Claire, you're thinking proper order. Proper order. Yes, she's giving thumbs up. The other way of looking at that is if the guy in the audience pays his money... And he wants to pull out his laptop. Isn't that his privilege? Oh, she's typing frantically. Anyway, some other stories very, very quickly. The story yesterday from Dara O'Brien, the housing minister, suggested that further tax cuts for landlords could be looked at or could be further strengthened, was the expression he used, over the next 12 months. Well, Sinn Féin has hit back Dara O'Brien's opposite number is Owen O'Brien and he could well be the successor in the Department of Housing. And he says there are many reasons that landlords, single landlords, are exiting the private rental sector. And it's not just about floating increased tax breaks. Um, it's due to a variety of reasons, such as the landlord wanting the property for their own use, high house prices, landlords approaching pension age, landlords availing of capital gains tax reliefs introduced during the last government. And instead, he says, government should be standing up for renters. They should be increasing and accelerating the delivery of genuinely affordable cost rental homes to provide renters with an alternative to insecure and volatile private rent. Is he right? And the final one today, a little bit of encouragement that if you are in the bedroom and things are getting boring, do not make it a box-ticking exercise. Kirsty Blake Knox writes in the Irish Independent about how when you are on the journey for fertility, trying to conceive your first child or even subsequent children, there can be calendars and cycles and dates dominating your thoughts. And this can lead to disappointment and frustration and heartache. And anyway, it's a good article, but she goes on to say that the science very much proves that Relaxing and not being under pressure helps the whole process, which can be easier said than done sometimes.
Anyway, that's a summary of what's in the morning papers. Did I miss anything? Did you see something interesting? If so, please send it to me. Again, 083 30 10 103. Text or WhatsApp the link. Powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Love the Midlands. Love Midlands today. Midlands 103. Now, you may have seen, if you've opened up your phone and been scrolling in the last few days, the little boy with the big, big smile. And he is Joey, the son of Tommy and Natalie Conway from Tullamore. And that smile hides, unfortunately, a severe illness. Guys, good morning. Hey, well, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, Joey is one of three children. He's your middle child, I believe. And uh, you've a very busy household at the best of times anyway. So when did you suspect something wasn't quite right? Well, I suppose um, he got... I'm a primary school teacher and I was in school and Joey gets minded by my mammy uh, mm. in her house. And she rang me and, you know, grannies don't ring unless there's something serious wrong. Yeah, she they have good she, instincts. She, yeah, yeah. So she rang me and said, Joey's really sick. You may come home from work. So we did. And uh, he was kind of kind of green colour, I always kind of imagine, kind of rigid almost. And it was bring him straight up to Mullingar. And, and what age was he at the time, Natalie? He was only eight months old. Yeah. Um, we got over there and in fairness, the doctors over there acted really quickly, mm-hmm. thankfully. Um, I think Dr. Francis is the superhero over there who treated him first. Um, yeah, she straight away, um, um, just she put IV antibiotics in, so straight into the vein and um, he was put straight on the ward. And luckily he, he responded really well to them. They were quite surprised. His blood markers were way off, but he was still able to eat. And he spent about five days getting IV antibiotics on the ward. And then we spent another um, week in and out where we could travel home for the day. We'd get them in the morning, travel home, get them in the evening, travel home. He used to have to stay the night, sorry. And that went on for about two weeks. Mm. And then it was... Now, now, as a parent, you're naturally wondering, well, what's wrong? What's happened? Well, like he, Did you get answers? Um, not, not really. Not right away, no. No, the very first day he arrived, it was they managed it really well. He was they, they controlled his temperature and then... They were worried about meningitis, so they had to do a lumbar puncture, ultrasound, um, a few other bits, I can't remember. And, yeah, it was, at that stage, it was a bit unusual with his bloods. They said that, that they'd have to go further with this, and in fairness, they did. And that went on. We had an ultrasound that showed he had quite enlarged liver and spleen. But then we went back in July, I think it was, they were back to normal size. Mm. But in September of 22, it was going to be the discharge appointment. And at the time, the doctor was not happy with the size of his stomach. And straight away I went down to ultrasound it and he still wasn't happy. And he said, I need to send to Crumlin. So we started in Crumlin in, I think it was September. And in January we got a diagnosis from Crumlin of portal hypertension from a resulting portal vein thrombosis, which means you either got a clot in the vein or the, ve- the vein is non-existent. It never got to the liver where it needs to go. So, And then unfortunately for Joey, in March he got sepsis again. And literally, I'll never forget. He was, I was having a shower, and he'd always, he'd always come in. He's always, you can entertain him because he'd be just looking at you. <laughs> yeah, they have a habit of that. <laughs> yeah. No such thing as privacy or dignity. No such thing yeah. as privacy. And he just started shivering, and I straight away just like shivering really badly. So I brought him up to Natalie, and his temperature was through the roof, and like straight to Mullingar again. Mm. And I met Doctor Francis straight on anti- IV antibiotics, but it was too, it was too late. I'd have to take a hold then, and he was rushed to Crumlin that night. He was on a ventilator that night. Um, and he spent two weeks in a ventilator in Crumlin, and he was very lucky because the hardest thing probably for us was on the ventilator his stomach kept getting bigger, and uh, um, 
Yeah, so I suppose we learn very quickly that his condition, well, you know, he's a lot to overcome. Yeah. He had this history of the thrombosis, um, the poor hypertension, and then he's trying to fight invasive group strep A. So that was one challenge, but then he'd a mountain to climb because of his condition. Um, so, yeah, we had to look at our little man for a long time, kind of just fighting for his life because it was out of our hands. And in fairness, they're absolute superheroes, the nurses up there. And It sounds like every medical professional involved has been exceptionally diligent and um, yeah. thankfully so in that they persisted, even that doctor who wasn't happy with the ultrasound of the... Stomach yeah. initially, the, yeah, you know, it, it, yeah. it's been an investigative process leading you to that diagnosis of portal hypertension, which I have to confess, and I suspect many listeners will be the same. We had to Google almost yes. immediately. I'd never heard of it, had you? No, no and I, even us, that's most, like it's, Most doctors haven't heard of it. So every yeah. time we present to a doctor, it's like to pull up his stomach, go, geez, his belly is massive. And like, it's kind of when you get that once, and then when you get it about 15 to 20 times, it's kind of going, this must be a bit hmm. different. Um, and that's because he's a really big spleen, like a, a really enlarged spleen. And that's really, I suppose that's the hardest thing is after we got out of Crumlin, they had to, unfortunately, what they had to do, which made a big difference because he wasn't able to fill his lungs because his stomach was so big and um, because your lungs come quite far down towards your stomach. And they had to drain his stomach, so they put a drain in. And literally when they'd done that, he was off the ventilator within three or four days. But they said they never really had to do that with a child. They don't really have to do that. So... That was another one to his list that we were saying it was kind of unfortunate, but we were delighted he was out of he was out of ICU and a week later on the ward and then he was home and he done great for a while, but then his stomach just gets bigger again whenever he gets an infection because the spleen has to obviously, I suppose, take the load. That's your that's your immune system is your spleen. So like it's hard to watch him at times. Even now last week he's if his stomach gets big, he's not able to really crawl. Like he's two and a half, he can't walk because mm-hmm. there's such mass in the front of his belly. Um and when he when he's when he's sick, like he can't really move around, it's, and he's obviously very frustrated as a two and a half year old, and he's in a lot of pain and discomfort. We would say so. Yeah, like it's it's even more serious though. Apart from the developmental challenges yeah, and the yeah. discomfort, it's potentially life threatening if it isn't corrected. It is. Yeah. Like the biggest the biggest problem is that with that vein not developed and not not going straight into the liver, um, your body compensates at a very young age and starts to build varicose veins into the liver to supply blood, but it just doesn't stop. Like. The problem with the body is, even with inflammation, it doesn't know when to switch it off. Mm. So his varicose veins have grown all over his body, and the most dangerous one is in the esophagus. And if they're not treated on a management program, which we're under under Crumlin, every three months he goes in and gets checked on an endoscopy, knocked out, checked endoscopy, and then they might band them, put an elastic band around them and try and nullify their growth. But if they're not treated, they'll bleed, and he's internal bleeding, and that's, that's another ICU visit, and then try and stop the bleeding. So... We don't want him to get to that stage. We want to be able to try and intervene now when he's healthy, when his organs are still healthy, and try and get him a surgery which is which will restore the blood supply mm. to that liver. Now here's the challenge. If it was a common problem, so mm. broken leg, yeah. you can get a surgery in just about any trauma unit in mm. the country. With something as rare as this, how far afield do you have to look? Chicago. So Chicago is where we're, where we're planning to go. Um, in 24 um, to see a, a surgeon Dr. Superina and we were lucky to even find him it was kind of a, a thing Natalie started to find on Facebook she started to find this groups that had kids and even I think in the group of portal vein thrombosis in kids it's less than 100 people on a Facebook group Wow and it's more common in adults um, That speaks volumes though that even the medical teams here couldn't refer you 
to somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think I think it's one of those things. Um, I suppose. I think at the end of the day, to look after your own health, to look after your child's health, you have to do your own stuff. Mm. And it's like any of us doing our own healthy stuff, like going for a walk every day, doing exercise. We have to do our own bit. Like the, the, the system is swamped and it's a very rare condition. And I don't think sometimes you don't have the facilities in a smaller population. Like even the surgeon we're going to, I think he's only done 120 surgeries in 25 years. So it's very beyond rare. And 90 of them are from different countries. So but like, even at that, he's the closest the world has to a specialist. Yeah, then. like he's 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 the he's the one that we can get that, mm. and I think it's I think it's important that we get to him sooner because, as we talked to the surgeon about three weeks ago, he said we've never seen a child with two sepsis. That's so, the urgent thing, isn't that's it? The that's the urgent thing. Mm. It's not only the bleeding thing for us. Still, for immunology, they don't have a reason for why Joey got two of them. His immune system looks perfect in blood tests. So currently, like he asked, like how we live with it. It's like we have the two sepsis. So Joey takes a daily antibiotic twice a day to prevent this sepsis. We don't have an answer to the reason why through immunology and all that. So this is the measures we're after. A management plan of endoscopies, a daily antibiotic, and if he spikes a temperature, we must go to A&E to get blood done to rule out sepsis. So So you're always on red alert. We are always looking at knife knife edge. And I think think we said it like, that's one aspect. And then you're wondering, when will he cough up blood? Not if, because he will eventually. It's not something that's just going to cure itself. and we don't want it to become a when. We want to troubleshoot yeah. it now because we know what is going to happen. Um, and he's young, he's healthy. And we kind of hope that it will never yeah. happen and he'll never remember all this. That's what we hope. So he can just get on with his life and never remember being a two-year-old, unfortunately. We wish he could have his lovely childhood memories. But I'm sure he does. He does still have lots of fun. Like He loves he's his great, sister and he loves his brother. Laugh. Like even if, if people get a chance, that's the one thing we said we wanted to kind of keep his dignity throughout this process and obviously we have to show some of him, of his life to people to understand what he's been through but the most important thing is that video of him laughing because he's his most infectious mm-hmm. laugh it's hilarious mm-hmm. like we just we do we do anything we can every day trying to make him laugh and even as of sick he was and is to this day he never stops laughing which is I suppose just shows you the innocence of childhood which is brilliant So in the last uh, couple of weeks people have mobilised gotten behind you there's a campaign up and running. There was an article in the Irish Independent yesterday. It looks like you're getting massive support. But how high is the mountain you need to climb financially? Well, the cost we've, the target is 330,000. Um, and I think we're a third of the way there. I think we've seen this morning, I think it's at 122. So it's it's getting there. I suppose it's only live two, two weeks, weeks and Friday. Really. Um, so it is growing. It is getting massive momentum. And people have just been amazing and I suppose take the opportunity to thank everybody whether it's a donation a share a like a talk to their friend about it because the more people that know about it hopefully they'll be able to do something for us um, and for Joey more so um, and even yourselves getting behind us being in here the papers mm. everyone it's just been so good and look we'll just have to keep going and we'll do anything to get yeah. in there so I think it's we kind of we kind of conundrum really we we met with that surgeon. He kind of showed us the value of urgency with this. He said, I can give him a 90% chance of um, living a healthy life, not even thinking about any of these problems anymore. But he said, it is urgent for him. And he made the call. He said, I need you probably here till February, March. But typical surgeon, he doesn't deal with administration. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. We're hoping that it will be like not at the end of the fundraiser, was the 17th of March. So we're hoping St. Patrick's Day. So we're hoping that it'll be close to that will be the surgery date. Um, but even he was kind of like, you need to get over here as soon as possible. And we kind of had a conundrum where like, we launched it at Christmas, which is such a busy time. People already have a, a huge amount of expenditure. And we were shocked really with the amount of money that was raised. In the first week, it raised 100 grand. 
which is incredible. And it's already raised 20 grand this week and it's another three or four days. So, like, it's it's not a great time. We don't understand that, but it's kind of, the urgency was there. And we made a decision and that, that, Matt, that steering committee kind of made a decision. We weren't really involved. We've got great people around us and they said we just need to go now. So we're delighted with the way it's going and we're hoping to get there. And great people have got behind us and we're hoping more do. And we can just hope for the best with them. Well, you've 120,000 people wishing you on at this moment. So how can we donate? What's the best way? Um, there's a GoFundMe link. It's called Join Together for Joey. Um, if you go on to Join Together for Joey on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and TikTok, you'll find a link. And also, if you want to send us an email, because a lot of people are coming to us that want to run fundraisers. They want to run different things in their clubs, their societies, or may, maybe even their businesses. Um, and a lot of businesses now, and even in Access Business Park, have like donated very kindly. I really appreciate that because my own business is in Access Business Park. And um, yeah, that's the way you do it. You, you, get, you find a GoFundMe page. And if you want to just send an email, if you want to run a fundraiser, it's jointogetherforjoy at gmail.com. So yeah, you'll find it. Guys, I wish you the best. I can't even fathom what you've been through and of course you're trying to balance regular life as well you've two other children and all of this to focus on so our thoughts go with you and roll on the 17th of March I hope you smash that fundraiser Thanks, Thanks so very much, much for your time. Thanks Thank for you. having me. That's Natalie and Tommy Conway. Love the Midlands. Love Midlands today with Will Faulkner. Midlands 103. So when you think back on 2023, not alone did energy prices continue to rise, at least in the early part of the year, you also had the um, unfortunately crippling effect of multiple increases in interest rates from the European Central Bank. There were 10 in total, actually, from July of 2022 onwards for 12 months. The prevailing wisdom is that those interest rates are going to fall probably in the second half of this year. And already we've seen a succession of cuts from the major energy suppliers. And the latest one is actually the second in, uh, decrease from UNO Energy. Uh, which you may know as prepay power. So let's get an analysis of the market from David Kerr, who is chief executive of the price comparison, i.e. David, good morning. Good morning to you too. So how big a cut is you know announcing? They're announcing a cut around about 8%, Will, on their listing rates. They're going to drop their fixed rate tariff down to 28.93 cent, including VAT per unit. And that's a really strong reduction and a really good news for customers as we go into the new year. And it's available straight away uh, for any customer who's out of contract or any customer at all. But most most people should be out of contract before they sign up to any new contract. And um, it offers a fixed rate tariff for the next 12 months for customers who sign up. And that's important to note, Will, is that it is a fixed rate. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. It stays flat for the entire duration of the customer contract uh, at a rate that's below 30 cents for the first time in a long time. Mm. Now, that's an interesting point. You would have to believe that the bottom has been reached, that there will be no further cuts in order for that to represent value. Are you a betting man? Well, it's, it, it, it does already represent value, in fact, because it is the lowest rate in the market as of today. And it, in fact, it is also the lowest rate uh, when we consider the, the existing um, announcements that have been made that don't come into effect until the 1st of February. So, you know, am I a betting man? Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But what I can do if I sign up for this tariff on Muno Energy is I can be certain that the price won't go up. Um, it, may, it may not go down either, but um, it at least 
you know, for some customers who want certainty, it's, it, can, it can be certainly a good option for them. Interesting as well, they passed on the cut immediately, whereas some of their competitors announced cuts almost two months in advance of them coming into effect. Why would there be such a lag? So this this is the core of the Irish energy market, the electricity market and the gas market as well, for that matter. But the core is that Ireland's um, electricity and gas markets are really predicated in, in the form of a discount against a standard rate. And so the other guys, what they announced is a reduction in the standard rate which affects all of their customers, existing and new. And what Uno Energy has announced is a, is a new tariff completely, which is a fixed rate tariff. So it doesn't reflect an existing standard. It's not a mm-hmm. discount against mm-hmm. something else. And so it's made available straight away for any customers who want to, to avail of it. What response would you expect from the others? I expect that you know the ones that have already made an announcement, that comes into effect shortly enough, uh, they will be watching this very, very closely. All suppliers, and you, you perfectly represented the last kind of 18, 24 months of the market on your introduction, Will. The, the 2022 era and into 2023 for energy prices was unprecedented. The rate of increase and the, the veracity of the increase that we've seen then meant that the prices that customers pay effectively doubled over a very short period of time. And as you remember, Will, that caused four energy companies to go bust. They could no longer compete in the Irish market. And we lost a couple of big names like Iberdrola in that period of time, like Panda Power in that period of time. And prices peaked and sustained for most of 2023. And you also mentioned rightly the the, uh, European Central Bank raising their core interest rates from zero to 4.5% in that period of time as well unprecedented the speed and the veracity of those in, uh, increases. And we all have you know, been very, very affected by the cost of living crisis. So what would I expect from the other suppliers? Well, the, the unwinding of their positions where they pre-bought really high rates is now happening. The wholesale market rates of, are, are decreasing. So I would expect to see a, a period of price reductions on the electricity and gas markets for 2024 which is very, very welcome. But we're still very, very high in comparison to what we paid only two years ago. Yeah, and that's interesting because when you look at natural gas futures, when you compare to 2022, yes, um, prices have fallen substantially. But even when you go back further, prices are now 6% lower than they were five years ago for natural gas futures, which natural gas is one of the key components in deciding the cost of electricity. Yeah, it's around about half of our electricity is generated by burning gas. And so natural gas, that core commodity price, has such an influence on how much you pay for both electricity, but also, of course, for gas as well. And those prices remain stubbornly high. We do expect to see others follow suit. We do expect to see a a blending, in fact, of fixed-rate tariffs, such as New Energy announced today, and also variable rate tariffs, which can fluctuate as that core standard rate decreases, then any discounted tariffs that are, that are hanging off of that standard will also decrease over time, but could also increase. And that's what caught us all off guard, I think, in 2022 and into 2023. The standard rate increased so much, and even though we might have been on a 10 or 15 or 20% discount, we saw our prices increase dramatically. Alison has been in touch. She says it's no longer a simple equation about 
how much you pay for the electricity. She installed solar panels last year, so she has to take the feed-in tariff, the export tariff, into account as well. So you really need to get yeah. out the calculator, don't you? you? You do, and actually that's a good point. So solar is becoming more and more popular, obviously, as customers are taking advantage of the SEAI grants to retrofit their homes, and all new homes really are, are pretty much A-rated anyway. Um, they operate off of a heating system called mostly a heat pump, and that means that they're no longer burning natural gas to heat their home. It's a purely electricity-based home in terms of their energy consumption. And so putting a solar panel on the roof is a really strong idea. But of course, when you buy electricity for, let's say, 40 cents, including VAT, you can sell it back to the grid, to your, to, to your supplier, for this feed-in rate. But typically, that feed-in rate is about half of what you might expect when you buy versus what you sell. And so there is an emerging market there, and the, the clouds are beginning to disperse a little bit on it. But there, it's still very, very early days in terms of uh, the electricity you buy, the electricity you sell with the feed-in. People have the concept of battery packs that they attach to their maybe their garage wall or somewhere in their home that will store electricity that the solar panels generate so that they don't have to then subsequently buy electricity again, having sold it for half the price, and they can store it themselves. And, and really, over the next five, ten years, uh, a major component in the solution for energy supply for domestic customers is microgeneration through panels and microstores through batteries. Yeah, and I have a friend, actually, who has an EV and he charges it at very low rates overnight, but he also charges up the battery on the house. He doesn't have the solar panels, but he uses the uh, low-priced yeah. units in the battery to offset his yeah. bill during the day. So it is clever and there are many options available. It's just about doing your homework to see which one suits best. Anyway, price comparison right. websites always useful in such circumstances. David Kerr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Will. David is Chief Executive of Bonkers.ie. 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. So what are you saying today? Lots of good wishes, by the way, to Natalie and to Tommy Conway and to little Joey. And again, if you want to support, they are hoping to raise more than €300,000 between now and the 17th of March to get him what is life-saving surgery. And uh, we wish them the best in that. But uh, just to acknowledge so many messages, I'm not going to be able to read them all, but we will pass them on. We will happily pass them on. Now, uh, Will, the latest suspected arson attack is the answer to what about the homeless when people talk about immigration being an issue. That's from Hilda. And it's a reference to what happened in Dublin, a hub that was designated for homeless people. The word went around the community that it was going to be used for asylum seekers. And lo and behold, it seems to have caught fire. But was it an attack on immigration? Was it an attack on homelessness? Who knows? Thanks, Hilda. 10 o'clock news on the way very soon, after which we're going to uh, talk about Imelda Keenan, 30 years after her disappearance. And her family are convinced this was a sinister disappearance. They believe she was murdered. And they're of the opinion that acquaintances in Waterford have the answer 30 years on. Love the Midlands? Love the Midlands 103. Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, 
the environmental lobby, the gap between dairy farmers and everybody else. Did the outgoing IFA president leave the sector in a better place? Tim Cullinan looks at his legacy after 11. Reinventing yourself after the age of 50. You'll meet the man who hopes to soon be ordained, an Anglican minister. And uh, Brian Clunan shall be here in the next few minutes as well. If you're packing up those Christmas decorations, as you probably will in the next few days, there's a way to do it now that'll save you a lot of grief come next winter. If you have a question, by the way, 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. It is the 3rd of January, 2024. 30 years ago, 30 years ago, the family of Imelda Keenan lost a precious young woman and have spent the decade since wondering exactly what happened to her in Waterford City. Uh, she was from Mount Melick. She was, by all accounts, quite a shy girl. And there have been many uh, investigations since. There are some inconsistencies the family have uh, highlighted, such as how she could have uh, allegedly collected her dole on the 3rd of January, how she could be going out to do that when it was a bank holiday that day. So let's meet her niece, Gina Kerry. And Gina, you talked to us some weeks ago and good morning once again. Good morning. When we talked the last time, you were of the opinion that this should be treated as a murder investigation, that there are people in Waterford who, uh, 30 years on, have answers that could be critical in such an investigation. Are you making any progress? Do you feel you're up against a brick wall or is there a, a strong wind in your sails? Um, I I think out the, like, it's like 30 years today, um, I think out of all the years, Last year was the, the hardest for us because with all the appeals that we went out, we did find out information that we were never aware of about Melda's life in Waterford and the people that she um, hung around with, her friends and stuff. We, we weren't aware of these people and um, people came forward um, and spoke to the Gazi and it was hard to listen to, but um, it had to be done and now we have a better understanding of what happened to Imelda. So hard in the sense that the picture is becoming clearer, but you still don't have justice yet. No, we don't have justice yet. What we're doing is we're trying to get it upgraded to a murder inquiry. Um, We're asking the Gardaí to look over every bit of information that has come in and not leave a stone on time, start again um, as if it's a fresh case. And hopefully if they can get anything from the statements that people have made um, and get some evidence from them statements, hopefully we will get our murder inquiry. So one of the changes, I suppose, in in belief over the years is that it had been uh, thought that she was seen crossing the street uh, and there was an, an apparent eyewitness to this. You now believe this was a case of mistaken identity that... Uh, she may have disappeared on a different day altogether. Yeah, we feel because of what we've seen 
in her flat from like Christmas with the unopened Christmas presents and her glasses left behind um, her not none of us seeing her we just can't we can't accept the third so I do feel that the alleged sighting of, of Imelda could have been a fake or a false um, sighting of her you know because whoever was wanted to see said they saw him obviously saw a girl with long brown hair with glasses but Imelda didn't have her glasses they were back in the flat so there's just too much at Christmas that that we can't accept it, that she was still around on the third. And in light of this new information, and you've had this from different sources in the community in Waterford, have the Gordy acted on this to your satisfaction? No, we don't feel they have. Um, especially like at the beginning of the case, you know, because uh, two people allegedly said they saw her on the 3rd of January, um, the Gardaí didn't treat Melda's case as suspicious. And, you know, so they didn't even go in and search her flat or anything like that. If they had a, went in and did the, the routine checks, uh, they would have seen that Christmas presents were not unopened, her diary like her in diary that she always wrote in was gone. Her belongings were still there. You know, he were, they just focused on what these two people allegedly said and they were just happy to say it, it wasn't suspicious. Um, it, at now, they, the Gardaí, like any information that comes forward, they do look into it, they do follow it up. Um, um, they are, they've told us they are taking it very serious. So we're just hoping that... Um, this year will be where, you know, because a lot of it, witnesses have come forward, but there is vital witnesses that have serious information and we're just hoping that it's taken seriously and we, we get her our upgrade. And why do you believe there may be some people who know what happened and are not coming forward? Are they protecting somebody? Uh, yeah, I think... Because it took us 29 years to find out exactly who Imelda's circle of friends were, I find that very suspicious because if you have nothing to hide and you and Melda was your friend, why would you not go to the Gardaí and say, look, I was a friend of Imelda's, you know, she socialised with us, we went here, there, with nobody, the circle of friends that we actually know for fact that she hung around with, not one of them ever came to Gardaí to make themselves known to the Gardaí and um, people that, you know, really loved Imelda actually pulled away from the family two weeks after she went missing and never spoke to her since. Mm. So that made it very suspicious as well. And because we had no social media and stuff, you know, you would have to like write a letter up to Leash or before, and not one person of Melda's friends ever rang my nanny, which was Melda's mother and said, look, anywhere that Melda is anything we can do everything just went quiet and everybody, you know, like Melda used to follow a band that used to go around um, back in the day at that time. But when Melda went missing, the band split up and they all went their separate ways. So we just find everything just too, too quiet and too, why is it, why is everything so secretive when she was your friend? Why would you not want to help? And you're happy that's not just a case of people being unable to find the right words. No, from the information that we have um, got, like in the past year, um, it's more than it's more than just they don't know how to say anything, or they don't, you know, it's there's just it's too quite 
Um, and the information Russian. that you've received from the people who came forward in the last year, and these are people, I assume, who are unconnected to each other. It seems to be a fairly consistent story rather than everybody contributing a slightly different narrative. Yeah, like we have, say, eight or nine people that came forward that don't even know each other. They don't even know that, you know, that other people have spoken to us. And they all say the same thing. And I find that very, like, it, like it, that's strange. Like, these people all say the same thing, but don't even know each other. And I just think that needs to be looked into as well. You know, because at the end of the day, Melda was living in Waterford. Um, and people do recognise her now. They do, they do remember. And they've contacted us. They all can't, they all can't be telling lies on, mm. you know, it's, all, it's always the same story. It's probably hard to put this into words and only families who've lost somebody will fully appreciate what it would mean. But to get information leading to justice, how would that lift a load off you, off Jerry, off all the family who are left wondering? I think if we got to, like if we got a, it upgraded to a murder inquiry, it would take a lot of pressure off my family, a lot of strain, but I think it'll only be, it'll start a new investigation, you know, we'd be stressed out. If we got justice for Melda, I actually, I, I don't know actually how to put it into words, how it would make my family feel, but it would be very, very bittersweet, I think, because of the fact that Melda's mom died not knowing and her brothers died not knowing, and we feel that this case could have been solved 30 years ago if, if the right investigation had been put in place and it's so sad that Melda has family has passed away and not knowing where she is so you know it's it's just bittersweet we we definitely do want her back and we do want justice for her um but we will be just happy with where she is it's not even justice at this stage we just want Melda well, there is the old adage that justice delayed is justice denied and I'm getting a sense that maybe how you feel and many others in the family but what happened 30 years ago and the opportunities that were missed by not searching the home in a timely fashion for instance that's something that the passage of time can't heal if the Gordy today are able to upgrade this and pursue some of the leads that you found it may bring you uh, some closure and some answers eventually and I hope that happens and it's a very painful day for you so Gina, to you and your family, our thoughts are with you and we hope for the best. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks a million. That's Gina Kerry. She's the niece of Imelda Keenan, who went missing on the 3rd of January 1994, 30 years ago today. It's 18 minutes, nearly, in fact, 19 minutes past 10 and still on the agenda today. Brian Clunan does DIY in just a few moments and... The outgoing president of the Irish Farmers Association, Tim Cullinan, joins us after 11. To look back on his tenure, and a a difficult one, I suppose cap reform, always going to be a contentious issue, whoever happens to hold the presidency, but the organisation itself facing challenges with poor attendance at meetings in many areas, with many of the experts who were part and parcel of the fabric of IFA having retired or taken redundancy in 
the last few years. There's been a brain drain. And reinventing yourself after 50. If you've done that, if you've a story to share, we'd love to hear it. And now, with thanks to Bright Ideas Lighting, Talbot Avenue at Lone. Building or renovating? They work with you to create a bespoke lighting plan for your home. Brightideas.ie Will these two play nice for their New Year's resolution? Or will they fill the air with verbal pollution? Either way, Brian has arrived, so be no longer deprived. To your DIY problem, he's got the solution. Mr. Fix-It! Well, Happy New Year. And a very Happy New Year to you and, and all of yours and all of our listeners. You're uglier than ever. <laughs> That'd be hard to achieve, wouldn't it? We just had to make sure that 2024 oh, yes. started on the right <laughs> note. <laughs> that is the voice of Brian Clunan from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore, who shall be here until 11 to take abuse and to uh, offer some DIY solutions. And he gives his fair share of abuse as well. Never. First question. Will... We had the hungry hordes staying with us over Christmas. Four offspring and partners and seven, count them, seven grandchildren. Not all at the same time, thank God, but ever since they have left, the toilet won't flush. Yeah. So, remember years ago having this with a, a listener and... It, look, I suppose you never know with grandchildren. What did they put down the toilet? But but even at that, usually copious amounts of yeah. Um, some people, toilet paper. Let yeah, me finish. Yeah, <laughs> some people use inordinate amount of toilet paper. Like physically, instead of using three or four sheets per wipe, not to get two, they use six or seven mm. sheets per wipe. Um, and you know, if they wipe a lot, that's that's a lot in one flush. The other problem is that it has become very prevalent. Now, why they don't have problems at home? But remember a friend of mine um, had visitors who used to, they they met them on on holidays in Spain and they used to visit each other every second year. Every year, you know, one would go from the UK. Yeah, they'd alternate. They'd alternate. But every time the people from England, the family from England came to stay, they had a problem with block pipes afterwards. And it turned out they were using wipes instead of toilet paper. Oh dear. Yeah. And that is not ideal in your septic tank. No. Or if you... It's not ideal in your plumbing, full stop. And even the ones, there are supposedly wipes that are, you know, biodegradable, but even that, it takes so much longer for them to break down. Now, they are better than using baby wipes. But I suppose, look, it's probably just volume of toilet paper and a build-up. And then once once there's a bit of a blockage, everything builds up behind that. Even if it's only a partial blockage, everything kind of piles on top of it. Um, so I would always say the first step is just to use a plunger. Now, you, the best thing really is a proper toilet plunger. And a toilet plunger is specifically for a toilet. It takes in, it actually, instead of having the normal kind of suction cup on it, it, it goes down, it fills square or round hole at the bottom um, but it takes in a huge volume of water so it actually has a container in it if you like that holds about two litres of water so every time you plunge there's a lot going into that container and out of that container so what you're doing is you're plunging and keep a bucket of water and flushing. What you want is you want the bowl to be kind of three quarters full at all times because it's creating a hydraulic pressure to to force everything out of the pipe. 
and you keep plunging. It's just you keep that plunging action and keep maybe one or two buckets of water and flushing because the cistern won't fill quick enough for you. So by having one or two buckets of water ready to go uh, and you fill and plunge and plunge it's, and, and just keep at it for five minutes and almost certainly that'll be the end of it. Now, failing that, we can go down the road of putting down and drain and blocker down it. But nine times out of ten, that'll solve the problem. And always, whether you're using a drain and blocker or trying to flush anything away out of a wash and basin, a kitchen sink, a shower, at the end of it, when you, if you've used the unblocker or whatever you've used, it's all about the volume. And what I always say to people in the shop is if you can imagine if you got half a roll of toilet paper and put it into the toilet bowl, clean toilet paper, just to be clear, and put it into the toilet bowl and stood there with a garden hose pointing it at the toilet paper, it's never going to flush it away. No. It needs the big volume. Even though you might, over the space of two minutes, put in the same volume of water, it has to have a volume and a weight to force everything down. And that's one of the things that the plunging does when you add the extra water to it. So that's what I would always suggest, first and foremost. Now, failing that, you can use a drain and blocker. Uh, it depends how slowly it's unblocking, how slowly it's, it's draining away. If it's a, a very slow drain, you can't use the extra strong one. But if it's draining in the space about five minutes, you can use the acid-based one, the very strong one. But you have to use it with common sense because it's very dangerous and very strong. And normally not recommended for toilets because of the multi-wick, the rubber multi-wick. But if it's flowing away in the space of five minutes, but just slow to go down. Yeah, that is it, not going to remain on the wick long enough to exactly, do the damage. Yeah. Exactly. All right. And the name of this special plunger? Just toilet plunger. There's, toilet there's plunger. loads of them out there. But it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it, it actually holds water in it. It holds a lot of water in it. So it tapers down. So if you were to use an ordinary plunger in your toilet bowl, the problem is it doesn't fill the whole hole. It doesn't create the suction. But this tapers down so it, it fills it because it tapers down and it's very powerful. You get them in any plumbing shop or hardware shop or builders providers. So a little public service announcement now. I'm okay. loath as I am to give you credit for anything, but okay. your approach to putting away the Christmas decorations has proven useful over the years. Great. So remind us for anybody who... Oh, Every right. December gets frustrated pulling out the tangled lights, for instance, yeah. how they can avoid that headache in 11 months' time. Yeah, so I suppose a few things. Um, number one, if you can use boxes rather than black bags or bags, it's much kinder to the lights. Everything stays, you know, you're moving a bag of decorations and lights from one spot to another it can get damaged um, if you use a box it is definitely better it doesn't have it can be a cardboard box but mm. a plastic box and, you know go into Dunn's and Tesco and everywhere at the moment yeah, they're cheap enough and you'll see them everywhere for this reason um, so always wrap it it doesn't have to be anything special but wrap the lights around something so a piece of cardboard remember at home in our house it was, it was one of, <laughs> we had a set of lights made by Sullis. Sullis haven't made Christmas lights in 40 years and the lights are still working, funny enough, because they're so basic and simple. But they were wrapped around a Kellogg's Cornflakes box. So the box was folded flat and, and rolled up and made mm. into a cylinder and taped. And one of these things, it's the same box for 20 years, you know, because... That's what you did. It's amazing the way traditions, particularly at Christmas, 
Christmas traditions are amazing. Things that make no sense in one sense become just the thing you do. So it makes no sense to keep the same piece of cardboard, but that's what happened every year. Um, and actually, I don't know if I ever told it, but I remember being very touched by, I was in a house one time, I think it was doing a delivery to a, an elderly couple. Well, they're probably my age now. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't know, I think they were in the 70s. And they did a very nice little old-fashioned crib on the hall table. But where baby Jesus should have been was a ninja mutant turtle. In Interesting substitute. Yeah. I said, no, don't forget, these people, you know, they're of an age now that they, they, they def, they've grandchildren, but they certainly don't have any children, you know, in mm, the house with mm. delivering, Santa delivering to them. But um, I said, what's the story with the Ninja Turtle? And we'll call him Will, you know, but just because a name, I don't think it revealed the name, but um, oh, he said, when, when, when William was six, he lost baby Jesus and he was absolutely heartbroken. So to make up for it, he took one of his prized four Ninja Turtles and donated it to the crib by way of apology. And now that's a Christmas tradition that stays going that's for lovely. the last 40 yeah. years. Fantastic. I, I was telling the story one time and uh, in, I, I, I think it was in, in anyway, it doesn't matter where it was, but a guy, oh, don't talk to me, he said. Seemingly, when I was nine, I lifted my baby sister, who was five, to put the star in the top of the Christmas tree. And now it's a, tr- a Christmas tradition. He says, now that I'm 22, and she is, do the maths, and unfortunately about 14 stone, I still have to try and lift oh, her up dear. because it's a Christmas <laughs> tradition. So some traditions make a lot of sense, some of them don't. But anyway, not like me, I digress. So It's like letting the little puppy up on the couch. The little puppy isn't little forever. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Started, you mean to continue with puppies? Um, so put, away the, put them in boxes. Uh, if you're putting away anything with batteries, take them out. If you leave batteries in over the winter, they will leak. Um, if you can, uh, just take the care and label stuff as best you can. If you're putting them in boxes, when you take them out, your job will be much easier. And I would always say, take photos. If you're happy with what you did this year, take photos and save them in a folder saying Christmas and then reproduce it again next year and you'll find it. And then you can label everything, living room, hall, whatever. Uh, outdoor stuff in particular, if you're taking down outdoor lights, you need to put them somewhere warm for a few days before you put them away. They, they will have moisture in them. They need to dry out. Um, and likewise, if you're next year when you're taking them down, there'll be condensation. If, uh, the box will never be completely sealed. Now, if it's in a plastic box, it has a better chance. But you're always better. Take them down. Don't take them down and plug them in straight away. Take them down, put them somewhere warm for a day, and then plug them in. And you have less chance of a set of lights shorting out because of condensation in the lights. But it's all about taking the care and putting them away properly. And your life will be so much easier when you're putting them back up next year. And the other thing I'd always say with Christmas lights, um, when you, this is for next year really, but when you're putting them up outside, if you're putting, say you want to put lights around your gutter or around the outline of the house, definitely the best thing to do is, it'll take a fraction longer to do it year one but it's just to put so say you want to just run a set of lights one length the whole length of the house if you put in a few if you drill the wall and put in a few screw eyes and 
you won't need many because they're so enormously strong. And then run a fine line, like a builder's line, like a strong fishing line. So you will run the line along the outline that you want to follow. And the line will be invisible. But because it's so enormously strong, say to run, let's say you had to do, let's say the length of your house is 30 metres. Two screw eyes would be enough. Mm. That Maybe three, maybe one in the middle, just in case of a slight sag. So then you would tie, put up the line, tie the line good and tight. And now all you're doing is cable tying the lights to that line. And to, take, to put them up and take them down in the future will be a fraction of the job. Instead, a little tap-in clips every time or stick-on hooks which can fall off and so on. So that's just another tip I'd always Very mention. practical, although that one will be more useful in December. But anyway, It would be more useful in December. It won't be any use to you anyway because you have no intention of doing it because you don't do any of this stuff anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I can't argue with that. In fact, the lights will probably remain up in the drain. Again. Yeah. Will I use tinfoil scrunched up for the Christmas lights? Absolutely brilliant. And What does that mean? Uh, I presume it's, you know, the, the tinfoil. Yeah. Um, being scrunched into a kind of a cylinder shape. All right. And wrap it. All right. Around. Okay, sorry. I, I'm taking that. Uh, stop talking SH1T. I'm trying to have my tea in Bickies. This is a oh, this reference is the to the toilet question. <laughs> um, oh, and here's a good one. You know, the cylindrical cat scratchers. Oh, yeah. That can be used for wrapping. Oh, yeah, when lights. the cat's finished with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you wouldn't want to do it when they're not or yes. they'll attack your Christmas lights, which they love which to do they anyway. Do. Yeah, that's mm. right. Yeah. Brian Clunan is here from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore until 11. It's time for the latest Community Diary with Tommy Solicitors at Loan, one of the largest, longest established and most respected firms of solicitors in the Midlands. Cara supports parents after bereavement and holds its next Midlands meeting in the Mullingar Park Hotel Wednesday, January 10th, 7.15pm. And they would welcome any bereaved parent, regardless of the age of the child or the circumstances. You don't need to register, just arrive on the evening. And for more details, see anamcara.ie. LOETB, the Leash Offaly Education and Training Board operates drop-in clinics for form filling and digital online support. And they happen every Monday in Tullamore Library from 10 until 12 and on Tuesday mornings in Port Leash Library again 10 until 12. And it is a free and confidential service. You don't need an appointment because this is a drop-in service. Roscore Clinic treats and supports RSV, flu, pneumonia, bronchitis, COPD as well as a range of digestive, skin, muscle and joint issues, plus general women's, men's, children's and infants' health, with the option of evening appointments. Contact Emmett Walsh or Ava Rafalowska on 057 93 or online at medicalherbalist.ie. And if you want to brush up on your writing, maths or computer skills, then contact your local adult learning service. In Leash on 057 86 61338 or in Offaly on 057 93 49 4. Or you can check out LOETB on Facebook. The Community Diary is online on midlands103.com if you want to check any of those items again. 
And if you wish to place your own notice, call 0818 300 103. The Community Diary, with thanks to Tormi Solicitors, experienced in the areas of law that affect people on a day-to-day basis. Tormi's.ie Mr. Fix-It on Midlands 183, with Bright Ideas Lighting, Talbot Avenue Athlone. Official stockists of Laura Ashley Lighting and Mirrors. See our dedicated Laura Ashley Boutique in store. Brightideas.ie Brian Clunan is here from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore until 11. Brian, I bought a set of lights for a tree outside and they stopped working even though it said inside or outside lights. And I'm just wondering, might the rain have gotten to them? They work by battery, says Jackie in Mullingar. Um, well, look, I mean, if you only bought them this year, bring them back and ask the shop to look at them. Um, one of the things I'd say to you is battery-operated lights should have a sealed compartment. So open it up and see, is the water in the battery compartment? And if there is, there shouldn't be. And you, you know, bring them back then mm. and ask the shop to look at them. Now, the one thing you never do is put the battery compartment. People do this all the time. They, get, they, they, they decide to give extra protection to the battery compartment. So they put it into a plastic bag. And the plastic bag always fills up with water. It doesn't matter what you do, mm. it fills up with water and now the battery compartment is sitting in a bag of water and that's a recipe for disaster. Now, what okay, I so always so do... So it's designed to stop little drops of rain perhaps getting in but not to be immersed. Immersed, exactly. But what I always do myself and it has always worked really well for me is I get a small bag, like a Ziploc bag, okay? And so it sounds like I'm about to do exactly what you shouldn't do which is put the compartment, put the battery compartment into a bag. I do, but what I do is I turn the bag upside down and I leave it open. So if you can imagine, the battery compartment is, say, the size of your mobile phone. And I put the Ziploc bag over it and I cable tie it. If I'm putting it on a tree, I cable tie it to the tree with the bag upside down. Mm. So it acts more like an umbrella. Exactly. And that has worked hugely well by adding extra protection, but yet... Not it can't fill up with water because the bag is upside down. So that is that's something that can work quite well. Brenda's. By the t- way, you know the way um, you can you can buy if if you ever visit someone in hospital. You've been in hospital and and if you've been like I've had knees replaced and you know you can't hop out of the bed easy to use the loo. So they give you a little pee bottle. You know it's a little bottle that that you can lie in the bed and have a pee. And I'm just thinking it probably wouldn't be any harm to have one in the studio here. Because, folks, I have to tell you, he, the minute uh, the ads came on, he went bursting out of the studio. and Bursting being the operative burst, word. Exactly. And then he burst back into the studio, popped down in the, in, in the chair, read the first sentence of the community diary, and then there was a little jingle, and he took about four deep breaths. <laughs> and then, very professionally, I mean, in fairness, listening, you would not know that he was completely out of breath. That was the idea. So I think a little pea bottle in the corner, and just, you know, swivel your chair. You're in a swivel chair. Just swivel the chair around. Maybe give me advance warning so I, you know, will you, look you, the opposite direction have, and maybe put my fingers in my ear. You could have let me away with that. <laughs> I will never let you away with anything. And I've a bad hip at the moment. Yeah, you poor old crazy. Yeah, so that's why it delayed me. Yeah, you're walking like a 90-year-old. I'm walking like you, which is worse. <laughs> Brenda's top tip for putting away the decorations is she boxes away per room and labels the boxes on the outside so she knows what is for the sitting room, what is for the Christmas tree, what is for the hall, and so on. And it makes it easier to go room by room when Christmas comes around again. Great idea.
fair play. Uh, next, Will and Brian, Happy New Year. Regarding the exterior lights, I have cable tie screw mounts on my soffit, just under the gutter, about every 500 uh, millimetres. You wouldn't notice them when not in use as they are white, but they make it very simple to put up the Christmas trees over the last 10 years or so. That's from Paul in Vanaher. Brilliant. Who sends a little picture of them just for reference. Oh, yeah. Mm. Wow, they're very good. So, nice one. Where Actually, did you get them, Paul? At, uh, at send me a picture of that. I want, to, I want to get those. OK, our next question is also from somebody who had a rather busy house over Christmas. Our three adult children were staying with us. Now that they're gone, I notice paint flaking over the shower because instead of the two of us having showers, there were five of us every day. And the three girls seem to take half hour long showers. Yeah. And hotter showers. I know, you know, I, well, I suppose that I noticed they, they, they seem to take a much hotter, if you get into the shower after them, the shower has been set to a hotter temperature. So that happens would. in your house too? Yes, yes, yes. William and I are always getting scalded. Yeah, 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 yeah. The and girls, the two girls are yeah, the girls, yeah, 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 yeah. And I would have said if anybody in your house had hide like a rhino, it was going to be you. <laughs> I do. But even that is challenged. Yeah. Anyway, the the issue is the paint the flaking paint on the ceiling. Flaking. Yeah. So look, we we this is a regular regular occurrence. We always say this. The, the problem is that your ordinary emulsion paint is permeable, and the steam. When in this case there was a lot of it, the steam goes up and it forms as condensation on the ceiling. But because the paint, the ordinary emulsion paint, is permeable, it 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 passes through it, and now the plaster becomes wet. And no, the paint, ordinary much paint, will not stick to wet plaster. It just it just flakes off. So the best thing, if you're going out to buy paint, the best paint to buy is an acrylic or water-based satin paint. And when you're buying that, it will say in the tin for wood or metal. It's designed for painting wood or metal as opposed to painting your ceiling in the bathroom. But because it's water-based, it acts, it go, it, it, it's exactly like using an emulsion paint but it's infinitely tougher. And then the other thing you could, if you happen to have, if you happen to have any outdoor emulsion paint, so Santex, Weather Shield, any of those sort of paints, they have a much higher, they're much tougher than ordinary indoor paint. So if you don't want to go out and buy something and you happen to have some of that left in white, you could paint your ceiling with emulsion paint, outdoor emulsion paint, as I say, Weather Shield or one of those things. And that is... It's still not as good as the water-based satin, but it's a huge step up on ordinary emulsion paint. You're going to love this one. Well. We haven't had this before. Hi, guys. I don't normally listen because I'm usually in school. I'm doing junior cert woodwork and I'm looking for project ideas. Would your DIY man have any? No, but I'm sure our listeners would. So it has to be... Enough want, to, yeah. pr- to impress the adjudicators. Yes. But manageable enough that a over junior a sh- cert can do. Can do and over a short space of time. Wow. Uh, someone out there has to have an idea. Something they've made themselves in the past or something that's particularly current. I made a wall-mounted telephone holder. Now, this was one that you had almost a little desk effect. So you could have your notes and then there was this 
tray that pulled out. Oh. With, uh, so once upon a time, you were actually handy. So are you, are you basically cheating your wife for pretending that you can't use those hands? You actually made something. You made a piece of furniture, effectively, out of timber. And now you can't drive a screw or hammer a nail. Well, I'm glad you used the word cheating because in 1996, I may have had help. Oh, right. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, you know, we're a small hardware shop and we sell all sorts of weird, wonderful ironmongery, you know, that nobody mm. else would have. So we get lots of people in looking for stuff for school projects. But the funny thing is, it's always the parents in looking for the stuff. And you just wonder when they go home with them, who's actually, you know, using the ironmongery that they've just bought. You would hope it's the kids. But part of the project should be the kids going in and looking for it as well and having to ask for it and, you know, maybe not knowing exactly what they want. But that's fine. The shop will help them once you describe what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'll say no more. How's the where is it now? Oh, it's still there. Is it? Oh yeah. Oh great. Oh, it's still there. I think you should take a picture and put a post it. Did I mention my dad is a metal work teacher and oh. tech drawing teacher <laughs> and or he was anyway, before he retired? <laughs> <laughs> just, just by coincidence. Anyway, <laughs> not from uh, that school. All becomes clear. <laughs> not all becomes clear. Yeah. Otelco apparently in Tullamore sell these little. Uh, cable tie screw mounts which Paul in Banner used on his soffit so there you go. good. that's one option if you wanted to get them my son made a stool with a leather covered seat that held CDs also wow that's a versatile stool isn't yeah. it back in the day CDs yeah we had a mini company uh, which turned CDs into clocks oh cool so you had the yeah yeah you know, so therefore it yeah. was decorative. Yeah. The art of the CD. Yeah. And then another company manufactured T-squares. Right. Yeah. Why can't a shower have a glass roof, asks Amy. Yeah, you could. I actually, we, we put, we uh, didn't have tiles at the back of our electric cooker. And of course, you know, my wife cooks fantastic food and a lot of it and the steam and everything would go up in it so what we did was we just rather than tile it when there was no other tiles in the kitchen on the walls we um, painted the wall repainted the wall so it was you know we'd say magnolia for argument's sake and then just put clear glass onto it so got a piece of glass cut to the exact size got four holes drilled in it and screwed it to the wall with four mirror screws which have a little nice rounded chrome or brass top on them. And it's now completely wipeable and as tough as nails and stays clean and the, the paint behind doesn't get dirty and it's so easy to keep clean. You could, in theory, do that, but it's kind of overkill and you don't need to do it is the bottom line. Next caller has a white chalky film on their bedroom wall. It's not an outside wall. What could it be and how would I treat it? Well, hopefully not mould. It sounds a little bit like it, a white chalky film. Mm. So if it's over the whole wall, you, you, might, you would imagine it's more paint related than anything else. Um, but if it's coming out in, in, in places, it would sound like efflorescence. And efflorescence is where you, the, the place you'd recognise it when I describe it would be on, on red brick. So you see this nice wall, red brick, and it has all these white, almost like, Almost like what you have under your armpits there, like sweat marks. 
on the wall. There's white salt on the surface of the wall. Um, and that's why you shouldn't wear those dark shirts. Just just saying. But anyway, um, what, this, what causes this is where moisture goes in. In the case of the red brick outside, the rain hits the wall, the, the, the water goes into the wall, and then as it evaporates out, it carries out the natural mineral salts that are in the wall, in the, in the, the red brick, but the salt stays behind. It doesn't, it can't evaporate away, so it, it stains the, the red brick. And this can happen inside, but on an internal wall, it would indicate there's a leak somewhere as opposed to... So on an external wall, you could have a leak coming through the wall. Mm. But on an internal wall, it's more likely an underground leak. If, this, if it's happening mostly at the lower part of the wall, that would indicate you have a leak, maybe a radiator, a pipe, you know, obviously. Um, so you need to get that looked at. Caller wants to know the best paint to use on a cement floor that is in a utility room. Well, the best paint, if you really want to go the best paint, so normally any of the floor paints would be fine. It's a utility room. It's not, you know, you don't have forklifts driving over it. Um, So there's loads of of floor paints. Generally, you tend to get what you pay for. Uh, The traditional ones only came in green, red or grey. So as in like a rusty red, like like oxide paint, like... um, Hay shed red. But nowadays you can get them in any colour you want. Now, if you wanted to go very high spec, um, you could go uh, a two-pack paint. But look, two-pack paint would cost you as much as floor covering. So unless there's a particular reason you don't want to use a floor covering of some sort, an ordinary, you could get a litre or two and a half litre of floor paint, uh, thin out the first coat, let it down into it, very important, and brush on the first coat, not roll it on. You can roll on the last coat, but you should always brush on the first one or two coats to work it into the surface to have less chance of it ever flaking in the future. All right. Uh, caller says they have slight scratch marks around the keyhole on their car door and they don't look deep, so they're wondering what would be the best way to disguise them. I will defer to my uh, auto expert who is sitting Paul across and, me. Well, <laughs> I thought you meant Paul well, and Banneher. I presume tea cut, but... That would be, I suppose, the first approach if it's not too deep. Yeah. And, um, or depending on how subtle they are, they might even just polish out. Yeah. So um, I wouldn't be bringing it necessarily to the body shop if it's only just some light marks from keys, but it does show when you're fumbling yeah. around in the dark. Yeah, and it's, it's the thing about having a big You'd bunch... you know a lot of, about that. Yeah. <laughs> but a big bunch of keys and you have loose metal keys with sharp edges. So just be careful. There's two reasons. One is we get, a, in our shop, we get an awful lot of, of broken keys, uh, uh, broken car keys, because people have big bunches of keys hanging out of them. And the weight of the bunch of keys puts so much pressure on the blade of the key, mm. it snaps off. But the other thing is, if there's a big bunch of keys and you're physically putting the, the key into the door, then those keys are rubbing off the door and they're going to scratch it. Can't be good for the ignition either to have a no. big weight oh, hanging not. out of it's it definitely not. It's definitely not. All right, that wraps everything up rather nicely. We will chat again in a week's time. Thanks very much. And you can find him at Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore in the meantime. Now... After 11, the outgoing president of the Irish Farmers Association reflects on his tenure and what he believes the challenges shall be for his successor. And as well, uh, a little bit later, 
we will be hearing how to transform yourself over the age of 50. Including you, that ship is long, long sailed, gone. Long yeah, long gone. You. And we catch up with Peter Dunn as his marathon progress continues. Midlands Today's Mr. Fix It in association with Bright Ideas Lighting, Talbot Avenue F. Lone, your destination for LED bulbs, bespoke lighting for vaulted ceilings, and kitchen lighting. Brightideas.ie. <laughs> Love the Midlands? No. Still to come today, reinventing yourself after the age of 50. Maybe taking your career and your life in a whole new direction. Actually, that's what our first guest has to do because he is handing over the reins of the presidency of the Irish Farmers Association. Tim Cullinan, good morning. Well, good morning and good morning to your listeners and just say Happy New Year to everybody as well this morning. We won't mention your age. Anyway, suffice to say, you, you will have a void to fill. And I suppose let's look back over the four years. How do you feel you've made your mark? Yeah, I suppose, look, obviously, every president coming in, there will always be new challenges. And I suppose if we go back four years ago today and the burning issue, which we thought was Brexit and you know, how that was going to impact. And thankfully, you know, it hasn't had a huge impact on our trading here in Ireland to date. And then little did we think we were going to end up in, in a pandemic or COVID. And you know, we all know what we had to deal with there. And I suppose for myself coming in as a new president and ending up having to de- to have meetings with our members online starting off with phones and then moving on to Teams meetings and Zoom and all the rest of it not just with our members on the ground at home but in in Europe as well, you know, having meetings with our colleagues in Europe. You no, know, it was a huge challenge at the time, but we got, I suppose we, we worked through that. And I suppose what was important in my first year as well during uh, that pandemic, we had a, a a crisis in the beef sector as well and we did negotiate 50 million of a direct payment from the government for beef farmers, beef finishers in, in the first year of my presidency. And I suppose what was ongoing at the time was the review of CAP or CAP reform which was ongoing and again that was very challenging because you know, we weren't able to get on the ground over to Brussels but eventually I did. Uh, once there was some freeing up of travel uh, I was able to get out to Brussels and you know, help negotiate in in the deal that was being done uh, by the government on behalf of Irish farmers and you know, we did help to influence that at the time, mm. you know, which is very important for Irish farmers. There's 1.2 billion a year of funding comes uh, direct payment for farmers uh, from the EU Commission each year. And I suppose moving on from that, uh, obviously then a lot of my time was taken up with you know, the whole climate debate, climate change and emissions and targets and uh, we did run uh, a very intense campaign around uh, the the ceiling or the targets that farmers would have to work to up to 2030. At the time, the government were looking for farmers to achieve a 30% reduction in emissions. We ended up where a decision was made by government that we'd work on 25% reduction in emissions. And I'd have to say, you know, farmers have taken up that mantle and are working, you know, already are achieving 19% of the 25% that we have to achieve by 2030 so you know and I'd have to say as well farmers are doing this at their own cost we haven't seen financial support from our government from the EU for farmers you know, to, to help along this journey as well Will. So in the past IFA would have had uh, a great brain resource lots of expertise in house to try and inform these issues and be proactive on these issues and 
not just during your tenure, but over the last decade or so, there have been something of a brain drain, a lot of retirements, a lot of redundancies. Is it harder for IFA to formulate policy now than would have been the case 10 years ago? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that. No, you're right. Uh, at the start of my tenure, there was a voluntary retirement scheme introduced into the association. And you know, a lot of the, the, the excellent staff we had for a long number of years decided they would take that package and move on. But I'd have to say, you know, we have been rebuilding over the last four years and we have an excellent team of young, energetic, and a lot of female uh, ladies in, in, in the staff now as well. And, you know, working very, very hard on behalf of farmers. And I'd say, you know, we have an excellent team there now, which is very, very important. But I think, Will, what's equally important is, you know, we're the only farm organisation here in Ireland that have a full-time presence in Brussels. We have an office in Brussels with two to three staff there on an ongoing basis. And, you know, my role over the last four years, obviously, I spent a lot of time in Brussels, you know, lobbying on behalf of farmers on the different issues. And, you know, if we look at what has happened over the last four years in climate and we had, you know, the Green Deal farm to fork for the first time was introduced by the EU Commission. And what has happened following on from that then all the different elements of legislation that has been introduced to date and you know, we've been lobbying on them. And just a few examples there is um, nature restoration law, you know, which has a huge impact on this part of the country. And was very disappointing earlier last year when this did come to a vote down in Strasbourg that all our own MEPs you know, voted uh, to support the nature law. And we were looking for amendments to that law. It wasn't that we weren't against biodiversity or or nature or whatever, uh, we were looking for amendments to that. And you know, we were lucky at the time that we did have a vote uh, around the rewetting of lands, which is a huge issue for our farmers. And uh, that element of the nature law was voted down at the time, but it still is in discussions. And you know, if we look at the makeup of the European Parliament now, you know, where you have the, the three groups, you have the, the the EU or the MEPs, the Parliament itself, mm. you have the EU Commission and the Council and you have this co-decision where the three have to come together and try and come out with a with a proposal and make a decision. So it is challenging and you know, from a lobbying point of view, obviously that is quite challenging as well. But you have a challenge in Ireland as well in that uh, traditionally IFA would have went to either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael in opposition. And now both of them are in a coalition government and it's Sinn Féin as the largest opposition party. How has that changed the dynamic? Yeah, of course it has changed the dynamic. You're right. When you have the two main parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, uh, in a coalition with the Green Party, it it makes our business of lobbying, you know, it's, it's a major challenge for us, you know, it is. And, you know, Sinn Féin are the main opposition party at the moment. You know, traditionally, if Fianna Fáil was in power, you know, you would be lobbying, obviously, the Fine Gael uh, TDs or, or government spokespeople at the time. And obviously, you're right, that has changed. And it is, you know, it makes our job more difficult. But look, I mean, our again, what we do is, you know, whatever make up the government is, you know, it's our job to lobby that government on the day and try and ensure you know, we get the best deal possible for farmers on the ground, I think, at the end of the day. But, but know, what's that's the relationship role. like with Sinn Féin? Sinn Féin, for instance, has been very active at the National Ploughing Championships, trying to build its support among farmers. Have they been effective in opposition, in your view? 
Look, um, I suppose, look, it's easy, you know, when you're in opposition and uh, I suppose you're a hurler on the ditch, really, you know what I mean? It's really when somebody, when a party gets into power, you really see what they're made up of. Look, Sinn Féin, in my view, and I suppose on a number of the key decisions, you know, have really sidestepped them. You know, when we take the whole debate around uh, climate targets for farmers at the time, I mean, Sinn Féin were saying that they weren't getting the proper information from the government and you know, all of the information was available to all of us and you know, we, was, we would supply all the parties with um, adequate supply of information from on an ongoing basis. I suppose, look, it was about dodging the issue and making a decision and I think, I think that's very important to want that you have a government that are willing to make a decision but that they listen to people on the ground as well, you know, listen to farmers, listen to rural Ireland. You know, we seen it here in this region you know, with um, the just transition with the ending of, of the harvest and mm. the peat and, and, and turf in this area and you know we're not seeing the, the funding flowing we're hearing about this just transition the same with the climate with farmers you know, we're hearing and in particular we're hearing the Green Party farmers have to continue to adopt new measures like anaerobic digestion uh, solar and, and all of those uh, different um, areas which I believe can be very beneficial for farmers and create a new income for farmers. But none of this will start well unless there's you know, a plan and adequate funding around those those new measures that farmers are willing to adopt and, and move forward with. Well, speaking of the costs, farmers are facing input costs and some of that investment you mentioned. IFA is increasing fees by €25. Euro. How do you justify that? Yeah, I suppose, look, if we look at where we're coming from and you know, we've all been dealing with inflation, like general inflation over the last number of years has run in the region of uh, 26%. So we've had, uh, there was one minimum increase four years ago in, in, our, in our membership. And prior to that, I think the last one was back 2014. And I suppose, like, if you're going to maintain you know, top quality staff, maintain an office in Brussels. All of this, you know, there is a cost associated with all of this. And uh, for me, look, it's still good value for our members. You know, the work is being done. And I suppose if you look at the more recent election and for the first time, you know, we, we made a change there as well where we went for a hybrid system. Mm. You know, for the first time, we had a postal vote and we've seen for over 40% of our members actually voted in this election. And I think that's very, very important because what it is doing is it's a given an excellent mandate to our president coming in. I just want to mention as well, like I think, you know, there's a historic moment going to take place in IFA next Tuesday when we're going to have the first lady uh, taking over the role as deputy president of IFA as well. So, you know, we've seen the organisation is functioning, but you're right, uh, there's a cost associated with all of this. And Well, know, at least you made the call rather than leaving it to your successor to have to I, deliver the bad news. I, I did and look and uh, it was something I had said I would do for quite a while and you know we didn't want to interfere with the, in the election process so we left it until the election was over and that decision was made in early December and look um, I believe you know, the association is very good value for farmers and I just want to say as well you know I'll be stepping down next Tuesday from the role and obviously I want to wish uh, Francie Gorman and um, in his new role at the very best to look and obviously there will be a lot of challenges for Francie in the future as well. Well let's but talk about some of those and I know you made the case for postal voting and it in increased the amount of people who could participate but meetings in some parts of the country are very poorly attended and 
arguably the vote would have been a chance to get people back in. Um, how can Francie try and reinvigorate some of those communities where turnout tends to be low? Look, I suppose, obviously, look, that's a challenge in all organisations. You know, people are time poor. You know, that's the, that's the first thing. And, you know, we have to move forward, you know, with, with, with people as well. And I suppose I think what's very important is when you're having meetings that they're relevant. You know what I mean? That you have a meeting, maybe you're having a meeting for dairy, you know, a specialised meeting. I think that's very important going forward, because if you look at the makeup of farming today, uh, you know, most farmers are specialising in one or two areas, let it be in, in cereals or grain or dairy or beef or whatever, or poultry or pig. And I think having more specialised meetings, you will bring the people from that sector out that you know, have serious concerns on the day. So changing and adopting to the way we do our business, I think, will be very important into the future. But I would have to say, and I've seen it, and you know, whenever we would make the call for our members to come out, over my tenure of the last four years, like the, the the branch structure does work, and the branch structure is very important for the organisation. So when we do need to get people out, if we have a protest in Dublin or wherever, or on one occasion we had four protests in the one day right down across the country, and so the support is there. And I think oh, when as somebody uh, made a comment to me on a number of occasions, you know, you hear a lot nowadays about leadership. And somebody says, there's no point in having leaders. You haven't got followers. And I'd have mm. to say, you know, we still have 72,000 members in the organisation. And, and we'll, you know, it will evolve. The way we do our business will change. And we have to adopt to that as well. And we have been doing that. You know, like, for instance, with the postal vote, it was something that you know, I personally wanted to drive through as well. And you know, thankfully, it has worked well for us. And there will be always challenges maintaining you know, the branch structure, the, the county executive structure. But those are areas that you know, the new people coming in will have to relook at that again in the future and obviously adopt and make further changes in the future as well. The All Blacks have an expression to always leave the jersey in a better place because you're just passing through. There will always be another president. How do you think you'll be recalled? Did you leave farming and IFA in particular in a better place? Look, I'll always leave that to our members will judge that. And you know, I, I didn't come into this job for self-praise. I came in, I've worked hard, I've given it my all for the last four years. Uh, you know, and that's all you can do. And you're right, look, at the time during my own campaign, there was a number of things we said we would do and we would look at the restructuring of the staff of the organisation. That was done. So we looked at other, we, we implemented other changes in, in the running of the organisation over the last number of months as well. They have been implemented. And as I say, you know, there was no stone left unturned. If you look at the campaign we ran this year on the, the nitrates on the derogation, and I, I know we're reverting back now to 220, and that in itself is a challenge for farmers. But at least, you know, we're still at 220. And mm. if we weren't out there, and there is quite a number of farmers that can still farm up to 250 kilos organic in as well. I'm just given one, one instance. So, look, as I say, I'm not going to judge myself. Obviously, that's for people to judge. And, uh, mm. uh, I and Any the, advice the, you'd leave for your successor, not on policy, but on just the nature of the job? Well, look, the nature of the job, I think it's very important as well that you keep in touch with your people on the ground. And it was one thing that I would have done a lot of, in particular during COVID time, when we could get out. We've had meetings in sheds, in, in cow sheds, in fields and everywhere. But I think that relationship with your people is very, very important. And obviously, I would say, you know, you have to have a good working relationship with the government. And look, we won't always agree, but I think that working relationship has to be there, both at home and obviously in broad 
process as well. It's very important to build those relationships. Like I've had two commissioners that, uh, well, one of them was uh, invited over by the request of the Taoiseach, but the, the Commissioner for Agriculture, I invited him myself over to Dublin two years ago and he did come. And when he did come, we did get him out onto farms as well. And actually, just looking back on it, I actually happened to be, had a meeting with the Commissioner for Agriculture on the morning that the Ukraine war started. And sadly, we're almost two years into it now. I suppose mm. for fancy coming in, you have that war still raging. You know, we've seen what we see what's happening in Gaza at the moment. And look, the, you know, we are in very difficult difficult and challenging times and I'd have thought and hoped that you know people could get around tables in this you know, in the twenty first century and come to some arrangement without reverting back to war. I've seen first hand in in Brussels uh, COPA is the European body that represents European farmers. Mm. I'm vice president of that. And at the start of that war, we did invite a group of uh, farmers from Ukraine uh, to join COPA at the time. And we had a lady over giving us the presentation. And, you know, when you see firsthand what people are dealing with on a day to day basis, you know, you'd, you just stand back and say, surely in this day and age, there is a better way. You know, so from that point of view, no, there will be challenges for Francie, but look, no better man. He, he's around IFA a long time, like myself as well, and I believe he will be well able for it. And same with Alice Dyle coming in, a new departure, first time ever, uh, a, a woman uh, deputy president of IFA. And look, in the future, who knows that we will see a, a woman president of IFA going forward as well. Tim Cullinan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, well. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Get exclusive content now on the Midlands 103 smartphone app. Midlands 103. 26 minutes past 11 on this Wednesday morning. So over the last few weeks, you will have heard Midlands 103's Peter Dunn prepare to run a marathon next April. So the weeks are going to disappear very, very quickly. And whether you are an experienced runner or somebody who wishes to do the couch to 5K, let's follow his journey. With injuries and Christmas week being in the way, the big question now is whether it will happen at all. Let's find out. I have a joke for you. How do you know when someone is training for a marathon? Do you give up? They tell you about it. It seems to be all they talk about. And although, look, it's a joke. There's a big element of truth about it because while you go to work, you do the school runs, the homework, you make the dinners, you bring the kids to all the activities they're involved in, do the day-to-day things we have to do to run a household, to live your life, you still have to try and fit in four to five training sessions or runs a week. So when someone asks you, well, any news? The only thing you have is, uh, I'm training for a marathon. With Midlands 183, powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie So we're up to week three now, and that kicked off on St. Stephen's Day. And the uh, training plan is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to run five kilometres each day to cross-train on Saturday and then run 11 kilometres on Sunday. This is how it went. I'm going to set off my first run, week number two. The last time I left you, I had done the 10k. Legs are still a bit stiff, still a bit sore. I'm kind of worried about my calf. 
worried about the fact that I consumed about 5,000 calories yesterday. Between food, drink, biscuits, chocolate cake. Oh, God, I think about it now. Right, get up with it. Just finished 5k. Oh, God, it's very cold out. It's one degree. I forgot my gloves. My hands are bald. I was running with my hands up my sleeves. My smartwatch is brilliant when it tells you your distance you've ran. Except about two kilometers into the run today, it died on me. Yeah, battery went. And uh, I think I've done 5k, I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and check. Yeah, let me just cut in there. Um, It turns out I ended up running almost six kilometers after. But uh, back to the story. Feeling a little bit of discomfort in the right leg again. That calf muscle that pops during the 10k last week. Uh, yeah, starting to feel it. It's sore. Just finished the run and I'm, I'm limping at the moment. So uh, I'll have to get more clarification from a colleague in the physio centre in Tullamore. So he might be able to tell us a little bit more about that. It's um, one of them ones, starting off a new training plan, you can get points where your muscles are getting quite sore. And uh, that, that can be very normal because we kind of come into this thing called overtraining where you push your body a little bit past what it's used to doing. It adapts to training that's done and it gets a little bit stronger, it gets a little bit quicker, it gets a little bit more of endurance. What comes along with that is pain generally, my muscle soreness. I suppose I'd usually describe that as pain that will start to settle down you know every part of your body might be sore it might be general soreness compared to what you might have talked about your calf where you forget that pop and one area is really really sore abnormally sore um again with some of the running and stuff with these tendinopathies and things they can come on quite gradually quite slowly and they can feel like just muscle soreness initially but then over weeks they might kind of still be there kind of longer than normal mm-hmm. And that's the way they'd usually start off. You learn pretty quickly when you start off the training, yeah. So today is uh, Thursday. The 5K run yesterday didn't happen because my right calf muscle is still in agony. Um, Put my hand on it now. It's sore. It's just rock solid. But it seems to be ever-present. So instead, I went to the gym on the Thursday when I was supposed to do another 5K. But um, I didn't run i cycled instead so i got on the exercise bike for half an hour by doing that and putting very very little pressure on the calf muscle so i'm just kind of hoping it'll keep my fitness up so um hopefully i'll i'll make it to sunday fingers crossed anyways so after a good bit of rest over a few days the pain died down thankfully and sunday aka new year's eve arrived and i finally got to meet up with my good friend and marathon running partner, Christopher Cribben. That's the crack, lad, huh? I have the spare hat. How many do you have there? Uh, five. <laughs> and we took off on what I thought was going to be an 11 kilometre run. Right, so we're halfway through uh, our long run. 11 kilometre run. We're after running, what, about five and a half k? Uh, just over six, yeah. Just over six k? Just over six k. Jeez, you kept that from me. You told me it was going to be 11. Ah, uh, we'll be alright. <laughs> This is great peer support, isn't it? <laughs> How are the legs? Oh, not too bad, actually, yeah. Mm. I've had to be a bit, bit more tired with the antibiotics and steroids and stuff like that, but I uh, fueled myself well, you know, yourself. <laughs> Plenty of Baileys and other liquids last night. <laughs> other liquids are available, obviously, like yeah. water. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so we're going to leg it back here, see how we go, and Sherlock, we'll chat to you at the finish line. 
just finished the long run. How long was it after, Chrissy? Seven and a half miles. So what's that in new money? Oh, bless it. 12k. 12k. Oh, Jesus. We were only supposed to run 11. What's a kilometer between friends? (laughs) (laughs) So in April, we're going for the marathon, the... 42 and a half kilometres or something, is that what it is, Chrissy? Yeah, 42.2k, yeah. Lovely, not that we're counting or anything. Uh, do you know what sounds better? 26 miles, 385 yards. That sounds shorter, I like that. That's the old money, yeah. <laughs> It'll be my first marathon in April. What number will it be for you? 17. 17? There will be prime years. <laughs> I used to run four or five a year. My goodness. <laughs> life happens. But that's it, life happens. Life gets in the way. What was the first marathon you ran? Uh, Longford. I did Longford in 2012. Funny story about that, actually. I was about 22 miles in. And for any listeners that know the area, I was coming out of Newtown Forbes heading back for Longford. And I got to an old lady's house and she was sitting outside of her table. She said, uh, how are you feeling, young man? And I'll leave out the expletives, but I said, <laughs> I'm wrecked. And she said, would you like to go in and sit down and watch a bit of television? She said, I have the fire on. <laughs> I looked at me watch and I went, no, I'm pretty sure I have somewhere to be. I said, but thanks very much. <laughs> Probably the nicest thing somebody's ever done for me, 20 miles into a marathon. But it was obviously, it was a good enough experience that made you want to do it again another 15 times after that. Yeah, yeah, look, there's times I quit, times I wanted to quit. I did a marathon before, what did I do, Dublin? I did it for uh, St. Camillus Nursing Home in Caloocan and that really brought home the the luckiness, I suppose, of doing it and being able to do it and all that kind of stuff. And then I did one for Temple Street Children's Hospital through Tesco where I work and now I'm doing this for Bardstown and I wasn't really clued in to what Bardstown was, if, if I'm honest. But when Peter told me a few stories, I was like, absolutely. Does that kind of give you the motivation to keep going to do Martin when you're doing it for charity? Because there a couple of weeks ago, you know, we put it out on air and a girl got in touch and she said, thanks very much for doing it for Bardstown. My, uh, my niece is going through sickness at the moment and she said Bardstown are an incredible charity to do great work. And uh, she sent me a picture of her um, giving us a thumbs up and it was one of the most beautiful little pictures I've ever seen in my life. And I got emotional. I, I, I cried in the studio when I seen the picture. And I thought to myself, you know something? I'll run this marathon now if I have to. You know, obviously not advised because uh, I'm not fit enough. But when you find you're doing it for charity, does it kind of spur you on that, that little bit more? Uh, it definitely does. Yeah, it definitely does. Especially when you have first-hand experience. Again, when I did it for St. Camillus Nursing Home, my uncle was in palliative care in St. Camillus Nursing Home. And I knew what what the money was going towards that adds a lot of motivation and then like say you know like there is a little bit of pressure on you because you want to finish it and whatever else but like when you do it like say this time now like time won't be a factor for me well I hope it won't anyways I'm doing it for myself of course but I'm doing it mainly for the kids and for what possibly me running this marathon could have in store for these kids is the main motivation I'm sure you're the same Peter That's it look we'll try and do as much as we can raise as much money for Barristown Children's Charity they are an incredible charity We need to give a big shout out to uh, Auntie Nula Nula Casey there The day we announced this she got on to her son and said I want two hats for the two lads to run in uh, the Manchester Marathon for Bardstown and the days are cold and everything so 
Big shout out to my auntie Nula there for dropping us over. Two nice KC sports hats. Nula, you're an absolute legend. I'm holding one in my hand here. It's green, it's red and it's white. And uh, I tell you, it helped today because it's absolutely lashing out during that long run. So It was, it definitely was. <laughs> it was a lifesaver. We decided we're going to do the half marathon in the Mullingar as well. Yeah, sure, we'll give it a whack, sure. It's nice and local and it's, it's always good to say you're running around your own hometown or whatever else. But yeah, we'll give it a whack. We'll give it a whack and sure. please God, we'll, we'll get you in one piece sure. on, our, on our way to Manchester. Plus 21 kilometres. <laughs> now you have yeah, it. Right. Now you have it. And if anybody else fancies doing it as well, come along. Absolutely. We'd love the company. Absolutely. Even if you're new, we'll, we'll, we'll start. Along. Big, big thanks to everyone who's donated so far to Barristown Children's Charity on Midlands103.com. Thank you so much to Hearmed Tullamore for their donation to Alison Moorhead and the Moorhead family, Paulrick Burke, Kathleen and Hubert Sheeran, and those of you who wish to remain anonymous as well. Thank you so, so much. I don't think you'll ever fully understand just how far your donation will go towards boys and girls all across the Midlands and all across the country who reap the benefits of Barristown Children's Charity. They are absolutely amazing. And if you wish to donate anything, big or small, it all makes a huge difference and you can do so by clicking on midlands103.com. It'll be the first thing you see on the website. Get active with Midlands 103. Click on that and it'll take you to our I Donate page. Now, next week, I want to get my gait analysed because my runners are about 10 years old and a few people are saying they could be the source of my injuries. So we'll see how that goes. And you can check out the podcast for an extended episode of Get Active with Midlands 103 with more detail and more in-depth interviews where you can tune in same time, same channel next Wednesday as we take another step towards running a marathon. With Midlands 183, powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie. Of course, Muggins here decided to do the half marathon in Mullingar with him and was training on the 23rd of December, did 16K and felt fine on the 23rd of September, but woke up on Christmas Eve to the most aching hip and lower back and it's been a problem ever since so yes absolutely take on the couch to 5k or the marathon if you are brave but expect a few niggles along the way they happen and that shall be covered in the series over the next few weeks how to deal with injury and recover from it and not hobble around like an old man like I am at the moment Now, speaking of age, with the passage of time, you may wish to reinvent yourself, to go off in a different direction. And there have been many such cases of success. A rather different sort of a story next, though. This one doesn't really have to do with fame and fortune but a different calling altogether. We're already putting the next Midlands Today show together. Get your topic included. Email midlandstoday at midlands183.com. Just gone at 20 to 12 on this Wednesday morning here on Midlands 103. So if you are thinking of reinventing yourself, the Irish Independent had a series yesterday on people who went off into business, perhaps. There was one lady who worked in insurance and had spent 35 years in the sector and then decided to start selling lucky horseshoes. And they are on sale in 10 stores in the United States. And now she doesn't talk finances or whether she is better or worse off than when she was working in a full-time job. But 
nevertheless, she finds it more fulfilling. And you get to a certain point in life, I suppose maybe the children are reared, the financial pressures are less. There are options to do things that maybe aren't as financially rewarding, but reward the soul or provide satisfaction in other ways. So I'd like you to meet William Edgehill, who spent much of his life in London, working in the hotel business. William, good morning. Uh, good morning to you. And what were you doing exactly in the hotel business? Uh, my background is hotel management, so confident banqueting and events. And you would have been in London, I imagine, uh, mixing in some pretty nice social circles. It was an attractive line of work. Uh, yeah, it was. It was all five-star properties, both in London and in Australia. And so travelled a bit with it. All starting off from the Phoenix Arms in Tullamore. Ah, OK. So <laughs> County Offaly is the homestead, and yes. you, you still had family back here, I presume? Yeah, yeah I do. Um, when I came back, my mum and dad and sister. So, so in London... The lifestyle is nice, it's glamorous, and it appeals certainly at a younger age, lots to do. Tell us about your neighbour and how her experience really struck a chord. Yes, so my neighbour is um, Irish, came over when she was 16, um, I guess in her mid-70s, and just lives on the fourth floor, has difficulty moving. COVID struck, and she saw nobody over that two-year period, you know, uh, to come in and see, check if she needed anything or wanted anything. Uh, we live in a very small black block, 18 flats, but people just come in and close the doors. There's no interaction of any kind. So and isn't that the staggering contradiction of a global city like London, that even though you are surrounded by millions of people, you can be utterly alone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Loneliness is a huge issue. And, and it's not just for old people. You know, it's, it's, it's all sections of our society, sadly. So you resolved this was not a fate you wanted for yourself? Well, it just made me think about it in 30 years' time. That could be me, <laughs> you know, stuck on the fourth floor with poor mobility and nobody to come and... Um, look after you or check on you or to care, I guess. So with family connections still back in the Midlands, you decided maybe now was the time to come home. Um, this was, again, back in 2021, I believe. And what was the plan once you got here? Oh, it, there was no plan, I think. It, I, and it was obviously spurred on by covid uh, looking at what was going on in the UK media, I decided it was definitely safer to come back uh, home to Mount Briscoe. And I say, and then it, it sort of developed from there what to do and where to go next. And what did that plan involve? How did it take shape? Uh, it's, it's, well, in a brief story, I happened to, I was in Dublin. Uh, a close friend in Australia had died, so I popped into uh, St. Anne's to Dawson Street for just some prayer and reflection. And I met uh, a clergywoman who actually I knew from Tullamore many years ago, 
and we had a conversation and she said would I ever cons- would I consider going forward for ordination and I laughed I thought me ordained that that's just not two words or two things I could ever see and Why then it not? just progressed oh I'm a guest uh, I'm a bit of a I, I like a good time. I'm too. Fun. I'm, I'm up for a bit of fun and games, and I don't think people will consider me serious. You know. Okay, uh, so this. These are all my judgments on myself. This was a bolt out of the blue, as far as an idea goes, and obviously, it took hold somehow. Yeah, I I had thought about it a number of years ago, and then sort of thought, no, that's just just mad. Then I came back here and spoke to uh, my local clergywoman in Gishel, Fran Gresham, and have literally spent the last two and a half years with Fran um, discussing it and, and getting more involved in, in ministry to, uh, to our parishioners. And it sounds like the more involved you get, the more committed you become so what appeals to you oh it's it's a uh, it's a calling it's a feeling that this feels right uh, it's um it's the idea of service the commitment um and and living by the example that has been set for us all uh you know and you either take it up or you don't or you you try to live it to the best of your can, of your best of your ability, and and I guess that appeals to me. And, and did you perhaps have misconceptions when you reacted initially? For instance, do you still get to have fun? Yes, I do. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, clergy are much more fun than I think people think they are. So yeah. And you don't have to tone it down. You're not minding your P's and Q's. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I definitely tone it down. I don't think there's nobody ready for full-on William Edgell yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's definitely, uh, yeah, that, that's too much. So I try to be as respectful and measured as possible. So how but, long might it take until you are ordained? Uh, interesting question. It's, I'm doing what's called discernment at the moment, which is a, a journey to discover my faith uh, and my belief in my calling, and also for my church peers to decide if I do have a calling, what that calling is and what it looks like, and if it's a calling to minister. Um, so I have no idea. I have two and a half years done. Um, hopefully within the next year I will get some indication maybe. But who knows, you know, you, you really put your, your trust in the fate that if it's meant to be, it will happen. So there isn't a sense of impatience then? Uh, I try to, tamper to, to, to measure my sense of impatience. Yeah, of course, I want it to be done yesterday and get, I'm getting older. And, but uh, I have to understand and I do understand, you know, this is, it's, a, it's a big commitment um, and everybody has to, you know, the church has to be sure I'm a fit for the, for the position and I have to be sure it's something that I definitely want to do or feel called to do. <clears throat> and yeah, 
as the days we go, you know, and I, I'm hugely grateful to the support, Reverend Isaac and Tullamore and Reverend Yvonne, you know, I, I couldn't do it without any of any of the, and the parishioner's support too, because it's, it's, uh, having seen you know, not your regular clergy person come, turn up on a Sunday to lead a service of that, so lots of people give you opportunities and chances to to learn and grow. Well, I suspect that's going to be a reality for people of many faiths over the years ahead. Even in the Catholic majority faith, there are challenges with not just a lack of clergy, but an ageing clergy and more and more lay people becoming involved. Um, and at the moment, it sounds like your commitment time-wise isn't necessarily full-time. Uh, you're helping out in the church. You're doing the pastoral visits. You hope to be ordained and to be more active in the years ahead. But how do you fill in the rest of your days? Uh, uh, my family run uh, an organic farm here in Dangan and also my sister has an Airbnb business. So I'm, well, now I've made the connection. So it's Mount Briscoe Farm. That's your family that's farm. It, yeah. Ah. Yeah. You did a nice so Christmas fair the there a few weeks ago. That's right, yeah. So I stand in the gap when they're moving cattle. I meet the guests when they arrive. Um, but there's also a fair, but there's a fair bit of work, you know, in, in studying and going forward for uh, my vocation, if you want to call it that. So when you have, I have pastoral visits to visit parishioners and there are services every Sunday or throughout the week that have to be done or accompanied or helped with. So, it's, it's very different to the life you had been leading for so long. How much of you misses London? Uh, I, I, I would argue that it isn't that different because it, to me it's all about hospitality and mm. looking after and caring and being interested. So, yeah... Do I miss London? Not hugely. So it's there, more the setting a, has changed rather than the nature of. Yeah, what there's you a do. much better. There's a much better quality of life here. Um, there's a, you know, we might say people are nosy here, but people actually care. You know, we live in the middle of nowhere. If Margaret or myself weren't home, you could be sure somebody would call and see that. Mm. Uh, that just doesn't happen in London. Now, I granted it's a bigger city, and there's lots of people, but there still is uh, an element of compassion and care and love here in our community. And long I may do. that continue, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. I know, and you can see it, you know, you just, I did a confirmation class with kids oh, there early on last year, you know, and these were oh, 13 year olds who were just bright, intelligent, engaged, but there were also good kids, you know, so I have faith in the community, the younger generations coming up. They're just as capable, if not more capable, than who's gone before them. On a final thought, because 120,000 people listen to Midlands 103 every week here in Ireland, but there are thousands more overseas who may hear this as a podcast even. And I used to be one of them. Well, thank you. But if they're scratching that itch, if they are thinking it is maybe time to come home. What advice, what learning from your experience could you share? To, um, to research it fully, um, 
you know, what services were available, just if you had health issues to check what that, what it would entail. Um, would you get the same level of health care here? Um, and just to pick your location and, and, and also realize that things are, will be slightly different. William, I, I, yeah. I think doing it with your eyes open and, and to be fully informed is the moral of that story. And I wish you the best in the years ahead. It sounds like you are enjoying, uh, despite your initial misgivings, uh, this change of direction. And it's rewarding to you and rewarding to others around you. So long may it continue. And thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity. And Happy New Year to all your listeners. And many happy God returns. Better. My pleasure. William Edgel. From Dangan in Cantiofoli, Mount Briscoe Organic Farm is where you will find him, but um, also perhaps in the not-too-distant future, hopefully, he will be ordained as an Anglican minister. Coming up on 5 to 12. Send us a text. 083-3010-103. Powered by Lamb Brothers Hillamore, the home of Offaly's top-selling car brand, Toyota. Midlands 103. Have you a story to share? in transforming yourself, maybe coming back from overseas and building a new life in Ireland, or even if you've spent all your life here, to go from one career to another? If so, studio at midlands103.com or indeed pick up that phone any hour of the day on 0818 300 103. And um, we've had a text, by the way, from Mary Richardson, who wishes William all the best and it is proof that if you want it, then go for it and the very best of luck to him. And uh, one last message. It looks like 2024 picks up where 2023 left off. The 1058 Mullingar to Connolly train packed like sardines. Irish Rail has pledged to try and get on top of that this year. The extra carriages coming onto the network and, of course, we don't know quite yet where they will be deployed, but that problem has to be addressed sooner or later, you would hope. Thank you, Claire, for doing all the hard work. Claire O'Brien was our producer today. We'll be back on your radio tomorrow morning from nine. Take care. Bye-bye. Midlands Today with Bus Erin. Use your TFI Young Adult or Student Leap Card on board Bus Erin services as part of the Transport for Ireland network. Visit buserin.ie today.